Well, let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Colossians. Um, <clears throat> I'm well aware of the time. It is quarter till. And I don't care. No, I'm teasing. Um, um, but uh, we're, uh, I'm aware that it is a little later than normal. Uh, but I, I do want to continue to preach the word this morning to us. And we'll open the text together and uh, ask the Lord to do a work in us. And man, I tell you what, uh, the kids make camp seem pretty scary. Uh, so uh, if you're nervous about camp, we'll let you go next year and uh, you can run safety on it. But it was a great camp. Appreciate all the effort that went into getting the kids out there. And uh, just a wonderful time as well with the folks we got to spend time with. I thank God for them. Uh, 1 Corinthians, or Corinthians rather, chapter 1 and uh, verse number 27 is where we'll begin reading this morning. We'll read verse 27 and 28 and 29. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would take everything that has been said today and all the songs that we've sung. Father, I pray that you would uh, work the message of what you're doing in our young people's lives into our hearts. Uh, Lord, may we have a renewed commitment to be in the Word of God. And what I pray, Father, as we open the text this morning, that, Father, you'd be magnified in what is said and done today. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Paul is talking in a very personal tone. He's been talking this way for several verses now. I, my ministry, I have been made a minister. I am a minister of the gospel. He's laid this out several times. And he continues this language even into chapter number two, where he says, I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you and how much he's laboring for them. And as we said last week, it is a very personal conversation that Paul is having. But in light of this, I want to ask a couple of questions by way of introduction this morning, and you don't have to answer them out loud, but I want us to think on them. What makes a healthy church? If we look at a church, how do we know if a church is a healthy church or not? Uh, and some might say, well, it, it, you know, if the church is adding numbers to the church, then that would make a healthy church. But I don't think that numbers alone make a church healthy. Um, I, I don't think knowledge alone makes a church healthy. Well, does the church know the Bible? And it's good that we would know the Bible and we need to know the Word of God. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make a church a healthy church. It doesn't reveal our health in and of itself. Well, maybe it's just age. The age of the church would be a healthy church. And, and the fact is, many churches that have been around for a long, long time, um, though they are still opening their doors on Sunday, are very dead on the inside. And we could probably discuss what makes a healthy church, and we could talk about that at length, and I'm sure there'd be very good input on it. But ultimately this, I would say this, that whether you're talking about a church or an individual Christian, it's not age or length of time as a Christian or Bible knowledge that makes someone a healthy Christian, but it is the preaching of the Word and the Word of God itself that gives life to a believer and gives life to a church. It is the Word of God that has to give life. And what do I mean by that? You can read the Bible and not be a growing Christian. Let me say that again. You can read the Bible and not be a growing Christian, but you can't be a growing Christian and not read the Bible. 
And so it's possible to accumulate information from Scripture as a church and increase our information, even get up and talk about the Scripture and talk about the Word of God. And we could, every week, most every church is going to open the Bible and we're going to discuss something from the pages of Scripture. And we could do that every week. Uh, and you can do all of that and not be a healthy church. But let me say this, you cannot be a healthy church if you're not in the Word of God. And the Word of God is not supreme. And so in light of that, as we walk into the text this morning, uh, let me remind you where we were last week. Last week, we had the, the goal of covering suffering and stewardship and secrets, and we were able to cover suffering and stewardship. And so this week, we'll pick up with secrets, and then I want to add two words to that. We'll pick up secrets and then proclaim and then struggling, and we'll walk through those this morning. And so the first one we see is secrets. The word secrets, I told you last week. I, I used an S, used secrets instead of mystery, because it started with an S, and then God just messed that up. I didn't even get to preach it last week, and now none of my points start with the same letters, so it doesn't make any difference. Um, but the fact is, this morning we're going to talk about the word secret or mystery. God's given us this mystery, and Paul writes of this. This is not unique to Colossians. He mentions it in others of his epistles as well. As he talks about this mystery, he said in verse uh, number 25, he said, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So he's talking about something that was hidden, that is now made known, and he said, I want it to be fully known to you. I want it to be completely open to you that you could see it. And he says, to the saints. So what is a mystery, first off? A mystery is something that is unknowable without divine revelation. It is something that without God speaking to us about it, we couldn't know it or understand it or apply it. And then he says, I'm going to make this known to the saints, not to an elite group of people, but to everyone who is a believer. And we understand that saints means to be made holy, and being made holy is something that God has done to us and through us. It's not something we've earned. It's something that he has bestowed upon us, and now we are saints because of the work of Christ in us. And he said, I'm making this mystery known to the saints. Very likely, Paul is making a play on words here as he comes into the word mystery. What Paul is revealing has been revealed to him, and now he wants it to be known to everyone, and he's doing so to say it is not an elite group of people who get this higher knowledge, but every believer gets the same knowledge and the same information is available. And this is what is being laid out in this mystery. And so what is this mystery? Well, he says it in our text, and we read it earlier. Um, he says, verse number 27, To them whom God hath chosen to make known, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is this mystery? God has opened the door to the Gentiles and was removing animosity between Jew and Gentile. That God had brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Now this is not news. Actually when we read the Old Testament we understand that it was always God's plan to be a light to the Gentiles. It was always God's plan that the gospel and the day star Jesus Christ has risen now and he is shedding a light into the nation of the world that through the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus, that all nations of the earth would be blessed. Jew and Gentile. 
Now, God raised up the Jewish people, and he chose them to be his people, to be a light to the world, and that all nations would be blessed by them. But they had gotten to a place where they thought they were the only people that God would ever use, and they were unique to everybody else and better than everybody else. And God says, no, the Gentiles are going to receive the gospel as well. And unless this morning you're of Jewish descent, which we may have one or two here this morning that are, we're all Gentiles. Every one of us here this morning are Gentiles that did not come through that line. And he's saying that everybody comes the same way, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jew and Gentile comes in the same door, and that door is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the mystery that's being unpacked here. Now let me make something extremely clear about the gospel. There is no division that man in his sinful, wicked heart can erect that Christ and his sacrifice has not torn down. There is no division that man in his sinful heart can erect that Christ and the gospel has torn down. If the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ unites us, pray tell me what is more powerful than that that could divide us. Would it, would it be our, our heritage or our origin or the color of our skin? God forbid that those things would divide us when we're united in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, man in his sinfulness creates all kinds of reason to say he's better, but Hebrews tells us that there's only one better, and that was Jesus Christ. He's the only one, and it is him that we find our unity. I mean, we sang it in Sunday school, didn't we? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. There's not a color that makes someone better than another, and it is in Christ, Jew and Gentile are united. And by the way, unless we are Jew, we're all Gentiles, and so they thought we were all a bunch of crazy nutcases that were dogs, is what the Jews would have called us. I mean, look at those barbarians up there. Look at what they do. They shove bones through their nose. They mark up their skin with ink. And that's just down at the mall, right? And we, we, that's what the Jews thought of all the Gentile nations. But here's the reality. The gospel brought them all under one name, and that name was Christ. United them together. And this is the picture that Paul is proclaiming to them. And what is he saying? Hey, stop with the elite thinking. Because it's not an elite few, it's everyone that hears the gospel is a part of the family of God. And every nation and tribe will one day stand and from all over the globe will give glory to the only one who is worthy. And This is what he's calling together. So God can take people on two sides of an argument and bring them together. You know, God can take people who think you ought to wear a mask and people who think you shouldn't have to. And he can make them friends hard to believe. He can even take people who think you ought to get the vaccination and people who think you shouldn't and make them friends. And here's the power of the gospel. He can make Coke and Pepsi people friends. <laughs> Brother Rick Durkee, are you, in, are you in here this morning? Yeah, he's back over here. Brother Rick and I have had this running joke for a long time and he's, he, pray for him, he's a Pepsi guy. Um, <clears throat> But I, I have my Coca-Cola, and we joke back and forth about it. He'll, he'll sneak a Coke into my office. But this morning, he walks in. He goes, hey, Pastor, I got something for you. And he brought me a Coca-Cola bottle opener. And he goes, I thought you'd get more use out of that. So, I mean, that's just the picture of the gospel at work right there, folks, right there. <laughs> Unity being developed over dividing lines. 
The reality, our brokenness is so seen in our attempt to think we're better, but the gospel says that everybody comes to the cross the same way. See, the mystery of Jew and Gentile is being unpacked by Paul's ministry. And many are coming in with legalism and with mysticism and trying to take the power out of this gospel. The problem of mankind is not his systems, but his heart. The solution for man's heart is not his efforts, but the gospel. You will never work your way out of a problem. You will be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what was addressed. And so the hope of the gospel, what is the hope of glory? It's not always easy to understand the hope of glory in that there is a part of salvation that has been received already, and yet there's a part that is still coming. That salvation is an ongoing work, and yet it's a finished work. And this too is a mystery that's being laid out for us in Christ, the hope of glory. What do we see is that we see in Christ, Christ has done the sacrificial work and that he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again, and there is nothing more needed for our redemption, amen? He's done the work. But how many of you understand that we live in the nasty now and now, not in the sweet by and by? Right now we live, and in the present time, we see sin, and we see brokenness, and we see division, and we know that there's a work going on right now, but we believe one day there's going to be a work realized when we see that great choir standing and singing to God's glory together united as the church that God calls out through the ages. And that is coming. This is the glory that is our hope, but right now it is Christ in us that is working. Christ has done a work, he is going to do a work, and he is doing the work at present. He is working in me to conform me to the image of his son. He's working in me to give me power over sin in the present. The hope of glory, what will be. Christ, what has been done in you is what's being doing now. That Christ would do a work in us, that he would do a work through us, and he's preparing a home for us. This is all the work of the gospel. It is a already and a not yet. So Christ has his life-giving work. What is his work doing? He has delivered us at the cross from the penalty of sin. No longer am I under sin's penalty. I've been freed from that. But he's also going to deliver me one day from the presence of sin. Sin will be no more. There'll be nothing defiling or mean in his kingdom. There'll be no pain or sickness or sorrow or death there anymore. And right now, he's delivering us from the power of sin. He's given us power within us that we can live in victory. We do not have to live in defeat. Though we will never be sinless, we can sin less. We can walk in a more holy walk with him on a daily basis. And this process is what's being happening with the power of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in summary of what Christ means in us, it is truly this, that he is revealing everything in the gospel will be ours in time. In time we will stand and possess it all. The word of God with its mysteries entirely revealed is Christ in you. This is the hope of glory, this alone. Christ is our only hope. There's not another hope. There's not another means to this gospel. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we have this hope. He said, not only then, this mystery, but I want you to see the word proclaim. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. No other. 
it is Christ that we proclaim. There's no other person to proclaim other than Jesus. There's no other name to lift up other than Jesus. It's the Jesus of verse 15 through 23 where we see him as the one who was the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead, the crucified, resurrected, and coming Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one we worship. This is the one we praise. This is the one we proclaim. You can't have a watered-down Jesus. He either is all or he's not. And we, we have many religions in the world today that are happy to include Jesus in their teaching. We're happy to say he was a good prophet. We're happy to say that he's a good man. We may even be happy to say that he is a means to God. But what we're not happy to say in many of the pluralistic thinking is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by Jesus. And it is Jesus alone that must be proclaimed. Him we proclaim. We do not proclaim Paul or religious leaders or diet fads or any other number of things that we could proclaim that may offer some kind of help to somebody in this fallen world. Because if all we do is offer them hope while they're here and we don't give them the hope that is Christ in them, the hope of glory, we do mankind a disservice. Because it is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. I hear well-meaning people talk about, uh, and I, I watched a video on it, pastor said they hired a consultant group, and they went through the community, went through the church itself, and were asking questions about what are the needs of the church. Now, by no means am I want to be deaf and dumb to what the needs of the church are. But the idea was we got to get in the community and get in the church because we don't want to be answering questions that nobody's asking. You don't want to be answering questions that no one's asking. There's a fundamental problem with that. Because if I ask a lost man what his needs are, he doesn't know he needs Christ. And too often when we ask a lost world what they feel like they need, they're missing the point. Now, I will say that the felt needs of people are a good avenue to get the gospel to them, but that's not what they need. They don't need better marriages, better children, better jobs, better houses. What they need is the Lord Jesus Christ. They need him proclaimed. We must proclaim Christ. Use those things as a means to get Christ to them, but don't fail to proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. You see, we only have one proclamation and one answer. It's Christ and Christ alone. We will take time to show you how Christ is the answer. I'll do my best to show you how the cross can address your child rearing and how the cross can address your marriage and how it can address the people at work that annoy you. And, and by the way, it does. The cross gets right in there where we live. The gospel is the answer. But if the answer is not Christ, we're asking the wrong questions. Christ is the answer. George Whitfield said this, and I love it. Other men may preach, a better, may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. There's only one gospel. It is Jesus Christ crucified. It is him we proclaim. How is he going to do this? He's going to do it by warning and by teaching. These two things are intrinsic in the preaching or proclaiming of the gospel is that there is a warning, that there is judgment coming, that there is danger ahead, and the warnings are necessary, but also teaching or instructing. Warning is saying what not to do, what to stop doing. Teaching is what you must keep doing and what you must start doing. And these instructions are a part of what it is, and he says, everyone. 
Everyone is implied in the entirety of this verse. He said, warning every man and teaching every man. As a matter of fact, when you look at this verse, I want you to see verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this text right here was the one that Pastor Caleb and Miss Naomi took for the youth group when they first came here. And they claimed this verse that they could teach everyone, warn everyone, to present everyone perfect in Christ. That was their desire and goal. They would labor in this end of disciple making. And we saw some fruit of that this morning. And is laboring to do just this, of bringing everyone to maturity. The scope is for everyone, not just an elite few. You see, the Gnostics had this idea of, of the blind, the, the mass blind faith of the many and the higher knowledge of the few. And Paul said, no, it's not the higher knowledge of the few and the blind faith of many, but it is teaching every man, warning every man, bringing every man into maturity. Every man, woman, boy, and girl with Christ living in him, God has a purpose and a work for you to do. What is the end? Maturity. To grow up into Christ. But it's not without struggle. And that brings us to number three. This verse, verse number 29, I, I need to slow down and let you see it. And we're doing well on time. But look at verse number 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is just a chock full little verse. He uses two words to describe the labor and the struggle. And then three words to describe power. And it's almost as if he say, we struggle, struggle, but we have power, power, power. And he's giving us this impact of saying, what is there in it? He says, we have been, we're struggling. And the first word, toil here, is to work till you are weary, laboring, and exhausted. Paul's talking about physical exhaustion. And here's the thing, raising children, let me give you another word for raising children, discipleship. It's exhausting. It's labor-intensive. It's toiling. Teaching children's program is exhausting. Working the nursery is exhausting. And yet, this is what we're called to do. Christianity wasn't, hey, pick up your, you know, your, your, your uh, what do you call the parasols, and put on your summer outfit, and let's whistle a tune. No, he said, take up your cross and follow me. And you'll be my disciples. It was a call to struggle. Discipleship is not a call to comfort. It was a call to sacrifice. And here this call to sacrifice is a toiling. And then he said struggling. This is to agonize as an athlete, athlete would do so in an event. It's to agonize over the outcome. We have both the physical toil and the inner agony over what is taking place. It's a struggling to see it how to happen. But how do we do this? I mean, when we look at this energy, I mean, and, and I can tell you personally, when I consider the overwhelming responsibility, and I stood there on Wednesday night as I preached to our teens and to about 135 total teenagers in that room the other night, and I stood there and I thought, can you comprehend how many people this group of kids are going to touch over the next 50 years? What a responsibility. Who's sufficient for these things? None of us are. Who has what they need to make that happen? None of us do. And we stand with this toil and this struggle. And if you're not careful, we can get into the toil and struggle of doing the work of discipleship, doing the work of forming people in the image of Christ. And yes, it is work. 
And as you do that work and you struggle to see that work take place, you can almost end in despair because it seems like that the moment you get finished on Sunday, there's just as much to do on Monday. And there always will be. And the struggle is real. Paul labored with his own hands. He labored physically. We do this, though, with the energy that he energizes us that will be like dynamite. And that's literally the words that are being used here. He said he's given us energy that energizes, that explodes. This is the power that is at work. This is what he's trying to get us to do. You see, the truth is no one can hope to have biblically authentic ministry without hard work. It's always going to be hard work. If you're going to win your neighbors to Christ, it'll be hard work. You're not going to do it from the comfort of your, your chair. It'll be being inconvenienced and having people in your home. And one of the things I loved on the video, you said it's a lifestyle of evangelism. I love that statement. That we bring people into our world. And this is not my notes here, but we lived in a nation at one point where everybody had a front porch. And now everybody has a back deck. And don't knock on my front door unless I know you. I get that, but Christians, we need to reverse it. We need to be bringing our neighbors into our homes. We need to be getting to know them. We need to have them over. And here's the thing, you can't talk to people about Jesus if you don't talk to people. you got to talk to people. And there's going to be work, and yes, it's going to be inconvenience, and yes, you're going to be tired when it happens. But God, give us the energy to do the work and to struggle. So many illustrations come to mind here in our text here. I'm not going to put them all in. But I love Alexander McClare, and he's one of my favorite uh, sermons. I, I don't read his sermons until the end of the week, because if I did, I would give up and just preach his sermon, uh, because they're that good. But Alexander McClare, and he said he would get to his office when the workmen were on their way to work so he could hear them walk by his office. And he was preparing his sermons while they were on the way. And then he had the habit of doing this. He'd put on work boots while he studied, because he wanted to remember who he was preparing for on Sunday. The men who were going into the mills and laboring in England, and he would put on his work boots to reminding that what we're doing is work. Let me say this, as we go to work this week, God is using our labors and our efforts to bring the gospel to other people, but it will be work. Now, he says, though, that we don't do this on our own. He empowers the work. Now, I think we hear that, and we think, okay, God empowers our work. How does that happen? I mean, do I, you know, am I going to get like a little green light that lights up on my Bible when I know I have the power? Is there somehow or another I can, you know, I can, you know, open an app and say I'm empowered to do the ministry work now? And, uh, or I get a little battery signal saying your ministry power is low. Um, that's not how it works at all. How does ministry power work? Ministry powers, we appropriate the power of ministry as we toil and strive. As we obey, it is only by faith that we can work, and faith always works. So here's what it means. Picture the man that Jesus walks up to. He's laying on the bed. He is lame, and he cannot walk. And he says, take up your bed, rise, take up your bed, go to your house. Isn't that an odd command? Because if the man could rise, take up his bed, and go to his house, don't you think he would have? The man was unable to do what God had commanded him to do until God commanded him to do it. And when God commanded him to do it, now by faith, he steps up and there's power in the legs that were never there before. And it carries him to do the work when he steps out in faith and obeys it. 
You see, we do not have to be told, uh, I'm sorry there, we, we do have what we have been told, and God dynamites the work for his glory. When we do what we've been told, God dynamites the work for his glory. I mean, Moses at the Red Sea. Picture him standing there. He's got the Pharaoh's army coming behind him. He's got the Red Sea in front of him. And he said, okay, God, what are we going to do? He said, okay, hold the stick out over the Red Sea. He's like, well, I mean, don't you think we ought to do like, you know, some kind of like test cases to see if what sticks do to water when you hold them out over the Red Sea? Maybe we ought to take a survey of the crowd and see what they think about sticking the stick out over the sea as a solution. No. God said, put the stick out over the sea, and when he stuck the stick out over the sea in faith, God did a work that the stick could never do. The power wasn't in the stick. The power wasn't in Moses. The power was in God who did the work, and it was obedience that appropriated the power. Jericho and Joshua, Naaman the leper. Naaman comes to Elisha's house. He says, go wash the river Jordan. And what's the answer? Ah, that's a dirty river. I can't believe you would give me that to do. And the little servant said, well, if he'd given you something hard to do, wouldn't you have done it? And he goes, I would. But what was it? It was the act of faith. It was the faith that produced a work of obedience that God empowered. And when he baptized himself the seventh time in that water, he came up and he was cleansed. Because faith is the way we appropriate the work. Not only is faith the way we appropriate it, but we experience his power in the daily cycles of work and exhaustion. Just because you can't see God at work, or just because you don't recognize where he's working, don't doubt that God is working. Too often we don't see him working. Hey Joseph, what are you doing in the prison? I think God, I thought God had a dream for you, Joseph. I thought God was gonna use you in a great way and I thought you were gonna be an upright man. Joseph, what's going on, man? You're in prison. And nobody could see what God was doing. Joseph couldn't see it. Pharaoh couldn't see it. Joseph's family couldn't see it. But God was still working. When we think of Esther in the palace, what is God doing? Why is God doing this? Is God working? Where is God? And Esther's an incredible story. God is not mentioned one time in the entire book. His name is not mentioned once. Why? Because when you can't see God, there is still God. When you don't know what God's doing, God is still working behind the scenes. And the greatest event in all of human history is Jesus lay in the tomb on day one. As they buried his body in there, nobody could see what was happening. And it seemed to everybody watching that Rome had won and the Pharisees had won and the enemies of God were on the march and it didn't seem like there was any hope. But God wasn't done you see, there is a power that is working in you to be powerful, and on the third day, that's where we have our right to claim this power, is because Christ came out of the grave. And we step out in faith, and God empowers the work in our hands. And let me just say this morning, church, we live in a dark day, and I think every commentary I've ever read has always said, these are dark days. Anybody ever read commentaries, you know what I'm talking about? Every generation, you're smiling at me, brother. They're all very dark days. I don't know, God's got to be coming back soon. And he will come soon. But here's the reality. It's not for the church to cover our heads up and hide out and think, oh my goodness, I can't believe how bad it is. It's getting so bad. What are we going to do? Let's just pray that Jesus would come back. Sure, pray even so come, Lord Jesus. But we are to occupy until he comes. 
We're not to cover our head and hide out. The church, yes, our day is dark, but don't hang your head. God is not asleep. God's hand is not shortened. God is not on the retreat. God is still doing a work through his churches all across the world today, and there's still dynamite power working to accomplish his purpose and his end. And when we don't see God at work, we believe God is still working. I think this morning we recognize his power. Pastor, when can I see God working? Well, walk out there on your way out today and look inside the nursery and you'll see God at work. Come on Tuesday afternoons and watch our prayer group as they pray and you'll see God at work. Come to a ladies' meeting and watch the Bible being opened up. And we get little glimpses of it from time to time, but we see God working. Come to a teen activity and watch the lives of young people getting changed and you see God working. And it may not look like big things, but God is moving it forward. It's done in the routine things, the nursery, the children's work, the youth ministry, prayer groups, Bible study, growth groups. Every detail of the work. Moms, as you teach your children this week, God is at work. Dad, as he ties a shoe or looks for the shoe so he can get the kids to church today. God is working in all the little details. You see... I love the ending of this. Remember how Paul said, I, I, I'm a minister, I'm a minister, I struggle, I struggle. But look what he says in verse number 28. Him, what's the second word? We proclaim. Paul included everybody in that. He didn't say it was just me that's proclaiming it. He said, him we proclaim, everyone here that is doing the work of the God, pastors, when we stand and preach the gospel, we are saying, we proclaim him. With the musicians, when they sing this morning, him we proclaim. The children's workers, when you stand, it's him we proclaim. Growth group leaders, when you teach, him we proclaim. The staff and our deacons, him we proclaim. And here's the thing, if you're a child of God this morning and the Spirit of God lives inside of you, when you leave these doors, our mission is to say together as a church, him we proclaim. And we don't see all that's happening with it, but we believe that God is doing a work. You see, Paul's ministerial drive is a model for us all. We will never have authentic ministry unless we're willing to work to the point of exhaustion. R.C. Sproul gives the illustration of taking what we have in our hands and doing a work with it. I think here's the, here's the issue. Western mentality has this too. If you can't do everything, don't do anything. And instead of taking the little that we can do and using it. Here's a lady who was born again. Some years ago, a woman in Africa became a Christian. She was filled with gratitude, so she decided to do something for Christ. She was blind and uneducated and 70 years of age. She came to her missionary with a French Bible and asked her to underline John 3.16 in red ink. Mystified, the missionary watched her as she took her Bible and sat in front of a boys' school in the afternoon. When school dismissed, she would call a boy or two and ask them if they knew French. And they were proud to respond that they did. And she said, would you please read this passage I've underlined to me? And those boys would read John 3.16 to her aloud. And she would say, do you know what that means? And she would then begin to tell them about Christ. The missionary reported that over the years, 24 young men became pastors because of the work of this dear lady of just taking the little work that she had and being faithful with it. I don't know what God's given you to do, but God empowers the work when we step out in obedience. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father.
thank you for working in us and through us today. Holy Spirit of God, do what only you can do. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.